that he would bless the reading and understanding of his word to us. Let us pray. Father, we now come to you in the name of Jesus, that you would open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our very lives, to receive your word. Your word is your grace to us. It works in us mysteriously, shall we even say miraculously, to transform, to change, that your word always accomplishes its purpose. It never fails to do that. So, Father, I pray that you would open it to us, enable us to hear it, receive it, with great joy that it might bear fruit in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Acts. I'm sorry, not to Acts. That would surprise you, wouldn't it? To Hebrews. That's checking. And chapter 6. Hebrews in chapter 6. I want to read again verses 9 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6 verses, verses 9 through 12. Hear the word of God. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now this is our third swipe really at this passage. Uh, You might remember uh, that he makes these points in verse 9, even though he has been warning them and all the people who have been reading this message Uh, for the succeeding generations, ourselves included, even though he's been warning them of not falling away, he has great assurance that they won't fall away. Notice verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You get a sense that even though he's been warning them, he, he has this sense of assurance for them. And secondly, that he desires for them to have this sense of assurance as well. In verse 10, he says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So he wants them to be assured of their own salvation as well. And so, a couple of few weeks ago, uh, in our first message from this passage, we asked the question, is it reasonable for a person uh, to think that he or she may have security in their own salvation? Can we have this kind of assurance? We answer that question, yes, because we're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not by ourselves. And so, since it's His work, then we can trust Him. If it was our work, we'd be up the creek. But since it's his work, we can have assurance. There is an objective ground. The Father, uh, the Scripture tells us, it's his plan of salvation. He's the one who chooses those who will be saved miraculously, mysteriously to us. It's the Son who agrees to come and to die and to achieve their salvation, to make propitiation for their sins. So he's the one who satisfies the wrath of God on behalf of those the Father has chosen. And then the Holy Spirit comes at the bidding of the Father and Son to apply that work into the lives of people, changing hearts, changing lives, giving a new inclination of heart to people, these very ones the Father has chosen, the Son has died for, so that they may believe. And then the Spirit indwells those very ones so that they'll be preserved. 
until the end. And so, uh, objectively speaking, yes, we can be secure. But, our next message focused on whether or not we live in that security, whether we have the assurance of that. The, the author of Hebrews gives the impression that not every Christian lives at all times with that assurance. And so he's telling them that they need to show this same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And that is that if they don't show that same earnestness, then they're not going to have that same, that full assurance of hope. They lose their salvation because that's secure, but they'll lose the assurance of it, the subjective knowing, confidence that yes, we're really saved. And so we looked at the fact that he was assured and then asked the question, why? Why was he assured? What do they need to, to be aware of? What do they need to be thinking about? What do we need to be thinking about to have this full assurance uh, of hope? And, and his assurance for them was based on God's justice as well as what he saw in them. Notice verse 10. He says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. That's his assurance. His assurance is based on God's justice, that God will not overlook something, that in fact God will remember what he sees in them. And what he sees is their work and love shown for his sake in serving the saints. Now why would it be unjust for God if he overlooked that? Well, two reasons we came up with a couple of weeks ago. One is because their work and love that they show for his sake in serving the saints is evidence of his grace in them. And no one loves God apart from his work in them. And that's the very graciousness of God at work. And so when people show love to God, when people do works for his sake, it's evidence of his Grace, the scripture says, so we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. Our works for his sake, our love that we show for his sake is the result of his grace in us. God would never overlook that. Not his work in us. And not only that, that since it's done for his sake, what he sees and what he values in that is the very thing we value, and that which is the worth of his own name. It's done for his sake. It's not done for our sake. It's not done arbitrarily. In a sense, it's not even done for the sake of those we're serving, at least initially. It's really done with the motivation for his sake. Why? Because he's worth it. And because he is so satisfying to us, as in their case, they were willing to sacrifice everything to serve the saints. Because they knew that what they had with God was more satisfying than anything they could ever lose. And so what they did was, for his sake, it showed the worth of his name. And any time the worth of God's name is magnified, he will not overlook it. Today I want to ask this question. Today I want to ask the question, why is there such a strong link here between their work and love shown for God's sake and serving the saints. Notice how he puts it again. 
verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And then verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. What's that earnestness? Well, the earnestness that they've been showing is their work and love for God's sake in serving the saints. See, to have this full assurance of hope, we must continue to serve the saints. It seems to be locked there. That if we're not serving each other, we're not loving each other, then it appears impossible to have this full assurance of hope. Because that comes when we show this same earnestness in working and loving for Christ's sake in serving the saints. So today I just want us to take that piece out of here and ask the question, what's that link? Why does it exist, this link between full assurance of faith and serving the saints? Does that make sense to you? You know where we're going. All right. Now, there is a very direct link in Scripture between being a Christian and loving other Christians. A very direct link between being a Christian and loving other Christians. In fact, it appears to be an unbreakable link. For if it's broken, then one isn't a Christian. Now when I say that there's this link between being a Christian and loving other Christians, I'm not saying at all that Christians shouldn't love people who aren't Christians, but just that this link exists, and that's the link that leads to assurance. Uh, For instance, Jesus said that we're even to love uh, our enemies. You might remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew, in chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says this. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? It's a little rhyme. Uh, Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying, listen, there's a certain sense in which God loves everyone because he's gracious in various ways to both the just and the unjust, the saved and the lost. For he makes the sun shine on both and and the rain. He gives to both. Now, when I was a kid, I thought what that meant was that good things happened to everybody and bad things happened to everybody because to me, sun was good, rain was bad when you were nine. But, but, but the point is, rain and sun are both good. So the point is that God is expressing his love to all kinds of people and all people by his common grace expressed to them. Now, we also know that God has a very special love that he shows to his own. There are special privileges, obviously, in belonging to God. A love expressed that's not just this sort of general love, but a very specific love. Uh, Namely, we're saved. That's a benefit that's awfully good. Uh, He treats us as a father treats children and his beloved children. So there are great benefits in his special love, but he's, he's saying that if you want to be like your heavenly father, you not only love family members, but you also love your enemies because God even pours out his common grace, his general grace in these ways to all. Not only that, we're to be people that have loving hearts. The parable of the Good Samaritan was one of the 
the great, great stories of Jesus. I don't think I need to read it to you. You know, the point man bloodied by the side of the road, religious leaders go by him. And yet the Samaritan, whom those listening to the story because they were Jewish would have hated, is the hero of the story, if you will. Because he's the one who stops and, and helps. And the irony of that story, as Jesus tells it, of course, is that the question that was asked Jesus is, if I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? Define that for me. Well, Jesus would have no part of that. What he was really going to define was whether you are neighborly in your own heart. Whether you're loving in your own heart. Because the neighbor in the story wasn't the one in need. The neighbor in the story was the one who helped. And even in the midst of telling that story, you see, when Jesus would have first mentioned the Samaritan, what would have been in the minds and hearts and emotions of the people listening was hatred. So he caught them in every which way. And he catches us in every which way. Because when we say, God, who should I love? He says, that's not the question. The question is, are you loving? Are you a loving person? That's really the question. Because if that's true of you, you wouldn't be asking this question. You might be asking, how may I love them? What would be the best way to love them? How can I best express love to them? But, but you wouldn't be asking whether you should love them. And so when I say that, that our assurance seems linked to loving other believers, I'm not saying that we shouldn't love unbelievers. I'm just simply saying there's a special tie here, believer to believer, that links us. And it should be linked in love. You remember the words of Jesus. Turn to John in chapter 13. And verse 34. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now that wasn't particularly new, that we should love or love one another or love our neighbors. But it was new in the sense that Jesus was giving it to them in, the, in this new age, in this new age, in this age when the Messiah had come. And, and, and the, the quality of this love now would be bumped up because of Him. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's... See, the old commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment, love each other as I've loved you. By this, all people you know that, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, the mark of the Christian, the thing that, that, that really shows the world that we're believers is that we love each other. And, and again, so intertwined in this in our whole lives is that Jesus goes on really and develops this over the next few chapters. Let me just read a few things. John chapter 14 verse 15 he says if you love me you will keep my commandments. And of course we know this new commandment is to love each other. Jesus is saying if you love me you're going to love those I love in this special way. You're going to love those who are your own brothers and sisters in me. If you love me it will be represented by that. It will be shown uh, by that. Then Later on, verse 21, he said, Whoever has my commandments, to love each other, and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I don't have time to unpack all of that, 
but simply to say that there is again this link between, between being a Christian, follower of Christ, and knowing Christ, and obeying His commandments, which is to love each other. Verse 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so again, this link between loving Jesus, having him live in us, making his home in us, and we obeying his commandments, loving loving others. Um, Chapter 15 in John's Gospel is all about, as you know, abiding in Christ, living in him. And the question then would be, how do we abide in Him? How do we abide in His words and His words abiding in us? This is very important. In the early verses of that chapter, it says that if we abide in Him, we'll bear fruit. If we don't, we won't. Uh, In verse 7 of that chapter, it says if we abide in Him, then He will hear our prayers. Um, And then verse 10 says this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now you see, there is no abiding in Jesus unless we're loving each other. And there is no fruit in our lives unless we're abiding in Jesus. And there is no abiding in Jesus unless we're loving each other. And there's no answered prayer unless we're abiding in Jesus. But there's no abiding in Jesus unless we're loving each other. You see that? I'm not making anything up here. That's the link. That's the importance uh, of all of this. Turn to 1 John in chapter 2. There's no surprise that when John writes his gospel, he remembers all the things Jesus said about love, and there's no surprise that when he writes his first epistle that he emphasizes a great deal of this love that we're to have for each other. First John, in chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning, that is, the beginning of the gospel. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That is, Christ has come and you're being transformed. So, so, so that's the newness of this commandment. It's, it's, it's the Spirit of Christ in you. Uh, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, that is another Christian, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Then in chapter 4, and verse 7, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In, in this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. You see the weight of this. This isn't something that's an addition to being a Christian, to love other Christians. This is part and parcel of it. I don't know if there's any other passage in the scripture that reveals this more strikingly, perhaps even more frighteningly, than in Matthew chapter 25. Turn to Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man, that is Jesus, and Jesus is speaking of himself, he uses that expression, the Son of Man, which they all understand to be as the Son of God, the Messiah. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So here we have the Son of Man as the King. And we know that Judgment has been given to Jesus. Verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so, here's the judgment scene. And it's of the nations. It's of all the peoples of the world. It could, be the, it could simply say gathered all the peoples together. Verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. And so we're listening to Jesus and we're wondering, what's the criteria? What's the standard? Upon what is this judgment? Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come to you who, uh, come you who are blessed by my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So Jesus is saying the uh, standard, the criteria upon which this judgment rests is upon how people treated him when he was in need. Verse 36. I'm sorry, verse 37. The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So the real question then is, who are these brothers of Jesus? We know they're marginalized. We know they're in need. We know they're difficult to love. We know they're naked. We know they're homeless. We know that they're in prison. We know that they're hungry. We know that they're thirsty. But who are they really? Well, he qualifies by saying, these are my brothers. And Jesus never uses that expression of just anyone. He uses that of people who are his disciples, who believe in him. Do you remember? This was my Acts mistake. That's what was on my mind when I was standing here. When I told you to turn to Acts, you don't need to, but you could turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Uh, you remember when Saul of Tarsus was going down the road on his horse, got knocked off by the bright lights 
And the words came from Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And the amazing thing is that Jesus was in heaven, if you will. Ah, and, and what Saul of Tarsus was doing is going after Christians. But of course, when you go after Christians, you go after Jesus. When you touch a believer, you're touching Jesus. The Old Testament, the way that the psalmist puts it, is that we're the apple of God's eye. That is, we're the most sensitive place in the very eye of God. And you know, if you get touched in your eye, your whole body stops. When, when, when I'm walking on the beach in Florida and, and a little grain of sand hits my eye, it stops me cold. You know, my eye begins to water, I stop to rub it, my nose gets sympathetic and begins to run. I mean, my whole body responds to this one measly little speck of sand in the apple of my eye. And that's how sensitive Jesus is to when we're touched, to when anything happens to us. And so he can say to Saul, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting these other Christians? Or why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? He said, why are you touching me? Why are you hurting me? Why are you after me? And so Jesus says, listen, if there is a brother who's in need, who's naked or thirsty or in prison. In fact, the people uh, in the letter to the Hebrews ministered to people in prison. Don't turn to this, but way back in Hebrews in chapter 13, they received this particular admonition. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. See, they're in the body and you're in the body. These are believers in, Christian, who are believers in prison who are suffering for their faith. Don't let them just stay there. Go to them. And even if it means, as it did, we remember reading in Hebrews chapter 10, even if it means that when you identify with them, you get nailed too. But how could you not? They're your, your, your brothers. You remember on that occasion, somebody came to Jesus. You can find this in Matthew chapter 12. And, and they said, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. My mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of my Father. So again, this doesn't mean this passage that we shouldn't feed everybody and help everybody and all that sort of thing. But what he's saying is, there's, the judgment can be on the basis of faith in Jesus and or on the basis of love for the brothers of Jesus. Why? Because they're one and the same. Because if there's faith in Jesus, there's love for Christians. This isn't a special judgment. This isn't a separate thing. This isn't a, a judgment that takes place at one point in history and another judgment takes place in another point in history. This is just Jesus describing a nuance of the judgment that's to come. And he's saying, listen, this is sheep and goat time and, and they can be divided up by the true believers, but how do you know? a true believer in Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. In fact, the mantra of unbelievers in the days of the second, first, second, third century church about Christians was this. See how they love each other. It was amazing. And no matter what the world did to us, no matter how much it came against us, no matter how much persecution there was, Christians would rally around Christians. And, and rich Christians would risk 
their place in society to go and to minister to those in need. And it was amazing. See how they love each other. Now, of course, we understand this, this link because we understand love in the context of family. If we, if we just look at this tragedy with Hurricane uh, Katrina, all of us, I suspect, in one form or another, as we've listened to these things and watched these, these, these uh, uh, shows on television and read reports and all of that, uh, our hearts have just been broken by the needs that exist. Uh, we've talked and people have called, what can we do? Some people say, I'm just going to get in my car and drive south and pick people up. And others, I mean, all kinds of things have run across us and that's all good and that's all true. But the truth of the matter is, if it had been your mom or your dad or your sister or your brother or your husband or your wife or even a distant cousin, that person would have been more on your mind than anybody else. And that's not bad. We all understand that. We all understand the sense of the intensity of love that comes in the context of family. It doesn't mean you don't love anybody else. It means, though, there is this special love in the context of your own. In fact, the closer you get to people, the more you begin to think, that person's just like family to me. I love them like I love people in my family. And that's the intensity of it. I mean, I love you and I love your children, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to pay your kids tuition. <laughs> but I do have a sense of obligation to, to, to pay my own kids tuition. And we understand that. And that's the point. How do you know that Karen is my wife? How do you know that Josh and Grace are my kids? Well, I, I hope you know that because if you observe us together, you see a special bond between us. You go, yeah, he's their dad. He's her husband. I hope that's the case. I hope it's the case in the context of your own, in your own family. And you see, first and foremost, the mark of believers, since God is our Father, and we're one as of His family, is that we love each other. That's the link, all right? But now, there is a link between being a Christian and loving each other, and having the assurance that we belong to Him. The author of Hebrews says in, uh, in this passage, verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, that this, this same kind of love, this work and love for God's sake in serving the saints. He says, I want you to, I want you to, know, to, to show that earnestness so that you'll have this full assurance of hope to the end because you see when we're loving each other it's evidence I do belong to God and the way that he's wired us the way that he's worked in us by the Holy Spirit is that that will bring to us assurance it's amazing isn't it that most of us would say that we feel assured when we're loved by God and loved by others that's normally the instinct of us well how do you know that you belong well people love me But in the body of Christ, as you might suspect, assurance comes when we know that God has loved us in Christ and when we love. So much joy has been sacrificed in the context of the body of Christ by waiting around for other people to love us. When in fact, 
Real joy comes, real assurance comes when we love each other. Jesus, in talking about loving one another, I read it out of John 15. He says, these things I've told you, that is about loving each other, these things I've told you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be made complete. It says, if you love each other, you'll know the very joy, Jesus says, that I experience. Would that be amazing? To experience the joy that Christ had. Because you see, it was the joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross, scorning its shame. So he went to the cross out of love for his Father, out of love for us, and that brought him joy in serving us, even while he was being forsaken by his Father and hated by many of the very ones whom he would save. First John, please, in chapter 3. John writes this first epistle, uh, he says, for the purpose that they may know that they have eternal life. Let me just read a bit. Chapter 3, verse 11. <clears throat> for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You see, that's, that's the mark of the world. The mark of the world is that it doesn't like us. When we, you know, it likes us as long as we're playing the game. But, but, but when push comes to shove, you see. See, the world loves us right now with the whole Katrina thing because we're joining together as we should to try to help people. But as soon as we start marking it off and say, we're doing this in the name of Christ, we're doing this because we want people to come and love Jesus, trust me, they won't be as happy with our presence as they are now. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from out of, life, out of death to life because we love the brothers. You see, we know that. That's the point of assurance. When we're being lazy, when we're being apathetic, when we're overlooking the needs of other believers, and by that I, I mean, yes, feeding and all of that, but also teaching, praying for, encouraging, writing cards, taking meals, being nice to each other, uh, supporting each other, uh, all of those kinds of things in love. Then we begin to realize, God has changed me. God has transformed me. And this isn't easy, because he goes on to say this uh, in verse 16. Uh, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We're not talking about a sentimentality here. We're not talking uh, really about gushing feelings, although there's nothing wrong with all of that. But he's saying, you know, do you know this is right? And is it your heart's desire to follow after this? And don't just talk about it. You see, if we just simply talk about it, we can do that for a while and we can plan and all of that on how to love people. But if we don't actually carry it out, our assurance will fade. Just get after it. Get after it. I don't have time to read this whole letter to you, but, I, but read it. It will amaze you. Verse 12 of chapter 4. No one has ever seen God if we love one another and God abides in us and His love 
and His love is perfected in us. That doesn't mean it's perfect love, but it's perfected in the sense that it's finally out there. We're finally acting on it. It's finally reached its goal. The love of God in us isn't just to sit there. The love of God in us is to be expressed. And once it's expressed, that's the perfection of that work of God in us. Ah, yes, people are loving, however badly we're loving at the moment. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. Of course, His Spirit works this love in us. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 17. By this, all this love, is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. That is, as Jesus is, so also are we. Meaning, as He expresses the very love of God, so do we. And as we're doing that, you see, our assurance that we really belong to Him increases. Now, what are we to do with all this? We have an opportunity here uh, to consider the love of Christ for us and even our love for Him and for each other. Because you see, as we begin to think of the love of Christ for us being a Christian, we begin to realize that this isn't the game that we're playing, that this is something that consumes us. This is something that takes us. This is something that redefines us. This is something that, that, that captivates us and takes our whole being. That we enter into uh, this family, this community, this covenant family, gospel community of people, of believers in Christ. And we come, we're very different from one another. Some of us may be hurting tremendously. And God says, love each other. And that love is costly. And that love, if pop music is true, that love even hurts, you know. (laughs) It's difficult. It's sacrificial just as the love of Jesus was. And he's saying, the fruit of that kind of love is that you grow in knowing for certain that you belong to God. That's the fruit of it. That's the carrot. That's the enticement even to say. As you love, you see, you're evidencing the very presence of Christ in you. And what he promises is that you'll become more cemented, more secure in him. And of course, that all first begins as we consider how it is that he's loved us. The night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so what do we remember? We think about Jesus. We think about his passion. We think about the tremendous love that he poured out for us, giving himself for his, at that moment in time, enemies. That we may ultimately bear his name and his image 
than to be as he is in the world to love and to love each other and so we celebrate communion which is our common union with God and this common union with each other and if you're like me when you think about this whole message that loving each other is so important you begin to have flood over your mind all the places where you've failed failed to love so let me put it in this context first this when you think about the love of Christ for us does that not make you desire to love him and to express that love to others when you think about all the places where you failed to love the words that you've said that you shouldn't have said, the words that you didn't say that you should have said, the things that you've done that you shouldn't have done, the things that you didn't do that you should have done, the times you've clearly passed up opportunities that you know you could have been of help in, but just simply were too lazy or, let's be honest, just apathetic and unloving. When you think of those things, doesn't it make you want to come back to him and say, I'm really sorry. Please work in me. Christ that I might love. And when you, you look out the course of your own life and you see how it is that you live and I see how it is that I live, so much of the time the concern is for my own comfort and security and all of that. Isn't there something in you that's saying, oh, may I put that aside? May I die to all of that? And might I live for the eternal good of those for whom Christ has died. And there's something there. And I believe for all believers, there is. And just like in all things, we need to bow before Him and confess our sins and ask Him to help us. So let's do that. Please, let's pray. Father, even as we hear who we are, and who we should be. Flooding before me I, <laughs> are all the times I haven't loved. I pray that you would forgive me and forgive us. And I pray that you would work by your Spirit, this right Spirit in us, to live as we are as believers in Christ, to love you, to love each other, provide for us opportunities and ways and wisdom in order to love each other. Turn our heads, our hearts away from ourselves that we might trust you to provide for us and through us even to others. That we might seek the eternal good of these who claim the name of Christ most especially and of all people. Forgive us, strengthen us. And we pray that you would do that even now around this table. That you would set apart this bread and this juice in a way that would enable us to feed upon Christ. And then in feeding upon Christ by faith, that we would be transformed, conformed to his very image. 
that we would be as he is in this world. Please do that even now. That we might come before you, feed upon Christ, and leave loving. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight except, and without hope except in his sovereign mercy, and to receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel, and that is freely as the Savior of sinners, and that you come to him, therefore by faith, and that it's your heart's desire to live as one who becomes a follower who lives becomingly, that is, as one who is a follower of Christ, one who loves each other as he's loved us. So please let me ask you to come. If that's true of you, these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two aisle to my right, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, let me suggest you think this, I'm loved by God, that I might love my brothers and sisters in Christ, please come.